In Scotland, when friends get together, they blether. When these three friends happen to be Scottish Blue Badge tourist guides, you can be sure that the country that they're so passionate about will be right at the heart of their discussions. Be it contemporary or historical, culinary or cultural, reminiscence or anecdote, from accommodation to zoos, the chat will range right across the entire alphabet of topics and issues that are live and happening in Scotland right now. We hope that you'll join us. There's nothing to beat a recht git blether. And welcome to episode nine of Scottish Blethers. My name is Susan. And I'm Helen. Hello from Liz. Together, we're having a bit of a laugh putting together this podcast, this episode especially. This is take two. We had the, Helen, you're flatlined, as she disappeared <laughs> off our audio. <laughs> I, but I'm, so, I'm back, I'm back. <laughs> just keep moving, Helen, just keep moving. <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've, been oh a, we've been away from this process for too long. We've all been pursuing other avenues and we're back in recording again and we're a little bit rusty, but raring <laughs> to go. Indeed. So without yeah. further ado, Helen, what are you going to be talking about in this week's podcast? Well, I'm going to be talking about something we all know and love, bread. What about you, Susan? What are you talking about? I'm going to use a new buzzword or a relatively new buzzword in tourism. It's called slow tourism. Liz, how about you? Well, this episode is going to be coming out round about the 31st of October, which of course is Halloween. So in my, my topic today, I'm talking about the origins and the traditions of a good Halloween in Scotland. And of course, we're going to finish off the episode with our favourite Scots words of the week. But before we get started, I think we should have a bit of a recap of how we've done, ladies, because it's really quite impressive. Everybody out there that's been listening to us and interacting with our Instagram and Facebook, and it's just been amazing. We've had 898 listens to our podcast from amazing. the first eight episodes. That's wonderful. It's, it's really just surreal because when we started it, it was really because we were frustrated guides. We wanted to keep in contact with people. We wanted to use our skills didn't really think that people would want to listen to us blethering and it's just been amazing it's been great fun as well indeed so helen why don't you tell us a bit about how we're doing on instagram well on instagram we're doing very well we've got some really loyal followers already we've got susan smith who is just super chapters and tea and Outlander Pod, you know them, Susan. Yes, aha, uh -huh. one of my Outlander guests on an Outlander Pod tour. So it's great those two came up together. Oh, that's fantastic. And we've got R. Tidwell, also a very loyal follower. Another Outlander one. Oh, <laughs> and Viola Lewis, Raving Scotland. She's one of our Blue Badge guiding friends. And from across in Spain, we have Pamplona Fiesta. And back in Scotland, we've got um, Jean Blair, a Blue Badge guide. And our own guiding association is following us. And as is, this is a, I love this name, Pickle Nicky. Pickle Nicky's there with us as well. And I think that's a friend of yours too, Susan. Yes, another Outlander attendee on the Pod Abroad tour. Yes, and I think her friend Crystal Peterson is there too. And coming up on the rails and coming up fast is Guide Collective. So that's Instagram. And thank you all very much for following us and liking us. That's great. 
But what we'd like is a little bit of feedback, how you like our posts. What about the photographs, the frequency of posts and photographs? Do let us know because we like to hear what you have to say. So, Liz, you tell us a wee bit about Facebook. Well, I don't know if there's a generational divide here, younger generation going for Instagram. But on Facebook, it's good old friends that are coming up and appearing as super fans on Facebook. People like Tom Broadfoot, who's been absolutely fantastic at sharing and following and just generally supporting. And some of my other tour members from the the past, like Diane Eason and Laurie Barstow. So great for uh, making contact with with old friends. But new people coming on. Stuart McIntosh, I know, is a relative of yours, Helen. Yes, that's my my cousin Stuart, yes. He's been great. And again, he makes good comments coming in. We've got Liz Green, Beth Shaw, Joe Randolph. I think for them, perhaps, um, Susan. Certainly Liz Green, another Outlander fan. Yeah, she's been great. And then and Beth Sauls, Jaws, one of our friends from the village, right. Liz. A few of those, like Anne Hatton and Anne Black, uh, coming in there as yeah. well. And then Pickle Nikki is back in another form as Nikki <laughs> Yardley. So she's she's been great as well. Some old friends of mine, like Laura Phillip and Colin Brannigan, And then from Rick Steves Europe, who Helen and I work for in the good times, Tara Tendy Swenson. She's been very supportive as well. So great. Thank you all so much for your loyalty and for your support. And what we'd just like to ask for going forward is if you could like or share. We've kind of run out of relatives and friends. So if we want to go any broader, (laughs) then we really need to be getting into new territory. So if you have some friends out there that you think might enjoy Scottish Blethers, then please share on the podcast and also rate us. I know that on Apple they have the ability to rate the quality of the podcast. So please be honest, but please put a rating in for us. And obviously we like to hear your requests for topics you would like us to cover. We've had requests so far for Castles and Glencoe, both of which we've covered. And we might come back to Castles because there's so many of them to choose from in Scotland. We might do an in-depth one on one of the Castles. And coming up, We've been asked to talk about Dumfries and Galloway. So we're planning that in for a future episode. I kind of feel some of the the Glasgow Boys artists or something like that do an artist tour of Dumfries and Galloway. It's such an overlooked part of Scotland. I mean, I am very conscious that I don't know it as well as I should do. And yet these programmes come up on the television and I always say to myself, I wish I knew more about a very, very beautiful part of Scotland and a very different part of, of Scotland in terms of scenery. Great. So let us know any topics you'd like to cover. So without further ado, I am going to pass over to Helen. Yes, well, bread in all its various forms is the most widely consumed food in the world. In Victorian times, the price of bread was regulated and the bakers who cheated their customers were fined. So to avoid this, bakers would often add an extra loaf when selling bread and hence the phrase, the baker's dozen came about. The Victorians prepared white bread bought at the bakery because homemade brown bread was considered backward, a bread eaten by poor peasants. Oh, how things have changed. The finest white bread was sold in whole loaves to be cut at home. And then came the invention of the mechanised slicer. And by 1930, 19% of shop-bought bread was sliced. Plain bread is a traditional style of loaf. It has a well-fired crust on the top and bottom as loaves are baked in batches. 
In Scotland, this was the most popular style of loaf. Then we moved on to the pan loaf, which was baked individually in a tin pan and was more refined. A few years ago, there was a concern that the only batch plant left in the UK might stop producing plain bread. Fortunately, the crisis was averted and plain bread is still on the shelves. Morning rolls are a great favourite in Scotland and they can be found in newsagents, corner shops and petrol stations all across Scotland. One of the producers produces and sells two million morning rolls every week. Morning rolls must be eaten fresh as they go into rigor mortis by the end of the day. And those of you who have had a roll at the end of the day know it's much better at breakfast. But they're essential for the hot filled rolls that are served at almost every cafe and snack van. A wonderful tradition. In the northeast of Scotland, especially around Aberdeen, you'll have butteries, sometimes known as rowies. They last much longer than bread and were originally made for the fishermen who needed food that would last for at least two weeks. And even today, they are shipped worldwide by Amazon. Can you imagine it? When genius gluten-free bread first came to the market and tasted and behaved like normal bread, it changed Anna, my granddaughter's life. She could now have sandwiches like her classmates at school. She felt normal. Of course, in Scotland, we have the bannock, which traditionally was a heavy flat bread baked on a girdle or a griddle. Queen Victoria had tea and a slice of Selkirk bannock when she visited Sir Walter Scott's home at Abbotsford. But what do we do when we run out of bread or just want to change? We turn to oat cakes. They're excellent with cheese or marmalade. Bread can be used in many meals, but probably the most common is in the packed lunchbox, or as we would say in Scotland, the peace box. The peace is the sandwich. You can use up stale bread to make bread and butter pudding, which is delicious, made with marmalade and served with custard. Bread crumbs are used to make queen of puddings, a much more refined version of bread pudding. Other favourite dishes in Scotland, fish and chips. The fish is coated with breadcrumbs before being fried. But you can't beat a big slice of bread with your homemade soup. That's lovely. And then, of course, we had a bread strike in 1977 and there was a drive to make homemade bread. And again, during this pandemic, people have turned to making their own bread. And I'm sure many of you have found the shelves in the supermarkets at the beginning of the pandemic were emptied very quickly of flour. Memories of morning rolls and being sent to the bakery when we were on holiday with a little bit of money and a little plastic bag to go and get the morning rolls for everybody. And even today, I have friends that visit me from England that grew up in Scotland. And the one thing they want, morning <laughs> rolls. And what do they take home with them at the end of it? The morning rolls. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing the variety of things that we put on our morning rolls. I mean, I love black pudding oh, rolls, black pudding and yes. cake, bacon rolls. And of course, the other one in Scotland is Lorne yes, sausage, the square sausage. Yes, I grew up not knowing that you also got a savoury version of Lorne sausage, and it's yellowy in colour because the fat's got sort of oh, spices right. and whatever in it. And I remember that a flatmate had some uh, savoury sausage in the fridge, and I thought it had gone mouldy. I thought it had gone off, and I chucked oh, it off oh, out, and that wasn't a good start. <laughs> it was savoury sausage. I didn't know anything about that. 
and making bread, yes, making lots of bread at home. And, uh, yes, learning the delights of making brown loaves and focaccias. And... There are so many people getting into sourdough bread through COVID. I really can't see the attraction on it. I'm afraid that I'm not a great bread lover. But I do like rolls. Yeah. So I would prefer yeah. the rolls. Of course, in, in Scotland, we, would, we wouldn't call it a sandwich. We would call a it a piece. piece. That's right. You were saying about the piece box. You would have different things on your piece. And of course, the famous one in Scotland is a jelly piece, which is jam is jelly, jelly, and the piece is the bread. So a jelly piece is a jam Are you going to sing sandwich. the song about the jelly piece? <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> You'll be pleased to know. But if you look it up, um, it, it's a great big long story. I don't think we'll go no, into that. I don't think no. you want that. I don't think you want that now. But lot, lots of artisan bakers appearing um, that are making a lot. Of, there's nothing better. The way I do like my bread is freshly home-baked bread. Beautiful. Well, I remember my grandparents, you didn't eat fresh bread. That wasn't, you know, it was it was too soft. They it had to be a day or two days old before you really? ate the bread, um, so that it had it got hard. And whereas now, I just love it when you go in and you've got fresh, um, pan bread. I mean, pan bread in Scotland is very posh, and um, pan bread. You know this story about the pan bread being, you know, the posh bread. If you spoke with a very posh accent, you were said to be speaking affy pan loafy. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. How things change, don't they? I, Nowadays, it's, uh, it's all the different pumpkin seeds and uh, all, all the different <laughs> grains that go into it. I put flax seed in mine. Oh, right. right. Oh, very good. That's good same for the nothing, bowels. Same nothing. Keeps <laughs> you regular. A bit like rhubarb, Liz. Is that <laughs> oh, not God, right? Here we go again. Rhubarb. That's right. <laughs> good in your gin. That's back to last episode. Indeed, but we do have some great artisan bakeries. There's uh, Bredalban Bakery in Aberfeldy and there's the Wild Hearth Bakery over in Comrie that do some great breads. Yeah, that's been one of the innovations of COVID, that all over the place people have been setting up and baking bread and doing a bread run, going out and delivering it to people. So, you know, COVID has been terrible. It's been really tragic for a lot of businesses, but there's others that have really... Um, sprouted as a result of it. They've seen the opportunity and they've gone for it. On that note, Liz, Scotland the Bread is a collaborative project to establish a Scottish flour and bread supply to grow nutritious wheat and bake it properly close to home. So it's all done in Scotland. But during COVID, they launched the Solidarity Bag, which is a 16 kilogram or an 8 kilogram bag of flour paid for by donation and delivered to the community bakeries, which are working across Scotland to keep their communities fed during this time of hardship. So I found that online. I think that's absolutely wonderful. Brilliant. One of the features of this COVID period has been that during the early stages of lockdown, people went crazy. They were stocking up and hoarding and everything disappeared off the shelf. And of course, one of the first things to go was the flour. So flour for bread making was like gold dust. You just couldn't get your hands on any flour at all. Never mind the flour, it's the yeast. Oh yes, it went too. Well, I did buy flour on Amazon because there was just nothing to be had. It was flour and toilet. There's, there's a story there somewhere. <laughs> there is somewhere. a story there somewhere, especially when you're talking about the rhubarb and the, the fusty bread, Liz. Ladies, let's <laughs> No, I now, I now understand it. It was the flax that was getting put into the bread that needed the toilet rolls. 
Right. Well, I think on on that note, Susan, I think we'll draw a veil over bread, but we will look forward to eating bread in the future with flax. Oh, be interesting. Now, you're going to give us a little introduction to what a new word to me, slow tourism. Yes, slow tourism is one of those phrases that you sometimes hear bandied about. And obviously this year, we've all had to learn how to take life at a different pace, whether it's due to illness, government restrictions or travel disruption caused by COVID-19. For many, it's given them the opportunity to live life at a slower pace. And if a silver lining can be found from this current pandemic, it's that people have spent more time with their families or have explored their local area in more depth than ever before. Could it be that maybe for some this has been the gift of time? I'm in no way trying to reduce or play down the horrendous impact of this disease, but in trying to find my own way of dealing with it, I've tried to focus on the positives. You may have heard of the slow food movement that started a number of years ago, and I'm sure many of you will have heard one of the new buzzwords in tourism, sustainable tourism. Springer.com describes slow tourism as the means of moving at a pace that allows rediscovery. It is to tourism what slow food is to the restaurant business. It is doing away with the stress and speed of travelling. It is accepting a slow pace as the norm for undertaking one's leisure activities. The illnesses that our contemporaries suffer from are for the major part linked to stress. Based on this observation, slow tourism then appears as a therapeutic solution as well as one that deals out pleasure. So that's the Springer.com definition. And to bring it a little bit more up to what it means to us, this year in Scotland, once lockdown was eased in mid-July, people started to venture out of their own home bubbles and to start to explore within their own country. This was the beginning of the unofficial year of staycations. As we adapted to the new norm, many decided that if they were going to go away, they wanted it to be based in one or maybe two places so that they could manage their potential exposure to other people and environments that they did not control. Many, myself included, booked vacation rental properties for a week or more in order to get some level of control whilst having their break away from home. This resulted in the newfound opportunity to take this experience of slowing down at home on holiday. Apart from a couple of fabulous weeks in the Outer Hebrides, I hadn't spent a week in one place in Scotland since I was a child when it was the norm. This year, we went to Clack Toll in Assent, about one and a half hours north of Ullapool on the northwest Scottish coast, and it was fabulous. We were blessed by fabulous weather, it does happen, and being there for a week meant that we were able to do the same local walks at different times of day and extend them as we saw fit. I think we got more out of this than moving on every two or three nights, which is what I was used to in my adult life. As tour guides, we are used to moving around with our groups every night, maybe every two nights or every three nights, as our guests try to see as much of Scotland as possible in seven to ten days. I can understand this, but I would urge those that can to slow down. Base yourself in two places in ten days and get to know the area in depth. Or do day trips from one place and leave yourself time to explore where you're staying. You'll be less tired and have a deeper connection to the country you've chosen to visit. Working with tour groups, we have little or no influence over the itinerary, but if you can afford it on your own or with friends, book a tour guide who will be delighted to help you construct an itinerary based from one or two centres. 
So Liz, Helen, you've been in the industry longer than me. Do you think people will embrace slow tourism as part of post-COVID travel? Well, I think they will, but I still think there's a place for the, the one-night, two-night stops because that's your kind of taster. Find out, get the, the idea of Scotland and then come back and do your slow tourism. I think if people are travelling into Scotland, they may find that they're paying big airfares. They want to see as much of the country as possible and then make the decision as to what they're going to spend time at. Well, I, for one, Susan, couldn't agree more with you. Um, as I look back over my photos in my phone from this year, I have had such a fabulous year in spite of all the, the troubles that it's thrown at us just by being at home and having the time with family to just explore my local area. We tend as guides to be heading off here, there and everywhere and then in downtime we're doing our own travelling and just to stop and take stock was an absolute luxury which I really enjoyed and I think by you know, doing a blog which has been very much about local walks, local activities and whatever, I think people are beginning to consider the idea that maybe jumping around from lots of different places isn't the way to go, but actually stop and understand a place more through seeing something in depth rather than just superficially. Yes, I would agree with you, Liz, except I think that the slow tourism of, of maybe a two, three centre um, stay in Scotland for people coming in from abroad, I think it requires that they do homework before they come that they actually know why they're coming and what they want to see so that and they can do that with technology they can do that with um inviting a guide or an expert a tour planner to help them yeah i think that's absolutely at the root of it i think that that's what guides are able to do they know all the the experiences and all the off the the beaten path places to go so um to take time to invest in someone to help you with your planning and then just to relax and enjoy it rather than ticking off sites, I think is, is the way forward. Yes, and also, Liz, I think that, as you say, this idea that we've been lucky enough to be able to stay at home and do things. I'm not a Fifer, although I stay in Fife, and I have spent... She's a daughter of the rock. <laughs> daughter of the rock. <laughs> is she? Um, I don't know. I've, 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 stayed, I've stayed in this village for 30 years, I have thoroughly enjoyed finding out the story, the history, the walks all around the village, and it's fascinating. But I think I'm doing that, and you probably are as well, Liz, in the luxury of knowing what else there is to see around Scotland. And you've been to Stirling Castle, Edinburgh Castle, Dunrobin <laughs> Castle. You've been over to the islands. People coming in might say, oh, I've got to see everything, I've got to see everything. But if they do their homework first, and then a tour planner helping them, it could be a fantastic time and much more relaxing. Yeah, there's no doubt at all that it's a different holiday. But if you think about it, Helen, it was slow tourism in our childhoods. Oh, you know, we, we yes. went one place, we stayed there. And I think nowadays it's the difference between a traveller and a tourist. A tourist yes. is wanting to go all over and travel as much as possible, see as many sites, soak up the experience and get you know their, their journal full of what they've done. A traveller yes. is taking the slow road, you know, getting to know the people, seeing an area in depth, perhaps more activity in the holiday, whether it's walking or you know, taking time for horse riding or cycling, whatever their particular interest is. So I think times are changing. 
oh, definitely changing. And, and I don't really want to go back to the normal, but I think there's got to be an overview of your destination country made and understood before deciding which two centres and what you want to see from these centres. And that's where your tour planner help can come in. Well, let's see where this takes us and see what happens to the industry next year. Watch this space. So I think it's time now to move on to Liz and your chat of ghosts and ghouls. (laughs) Well, Halloween is coming up. And again, we've got this split between generations. I don't know what you think of when you think of um, Halloween, Susan. What's What's your impression of Halloween? Trying to carve pumpkins with my dad and then going along the street and guising. Well, first of all, you're showing your age because you're a big softie. Yes. A pumpkin. Come <laughs> yeah, a on. Pumpkin. A Pumpkins pumpkin. for softies, right? Yeah. When you were turn up. Sorry, I meant turn you up. You meant turn up. Right. Well, that's just <laughs> as well. Because nowadays, if you asked a kid what they thought of when they think of Halloween, they'd probably say pumpkins, chicken treat, and getting dressed up as superheroes or dinosaurs or something like that. So if you go back to when I was a child. If I thought of Halloween, the images and the traditions and customs were quite different. In some ways, it's been hijacked by the states where Mm -hmm. it's huge. I read quite recently that a quarter of all the candy sold annually in the United States is purchased for Halloween. Quite different from um, the childhood experience that I knew. The origins of this festival lie in Scotland. Now, the Irish might dispute that and say that it lies in Ireland, but what we can agree on is that it basically goes back to the Celtic people that the Irish and the Scots share their heritage with from about over 2,000 years ago. Now, going back to these Celts, they were very much in touch with nature and the seasons, and their year was determined by growing seasons. So they celebrated a festival which was known as Samhain, spelt S-A-M-H-A-I-N, from Sau meaning summer, and when meaning ending. And this celebration symbolised the end of the summer months and the beginning of winter. If you just think about it in those times, you've got your harvest in, you've brought your sheep and your cattle down from the summer pastures. You're now thinking you've got months of cold, dark weather. Are you going to be able to survive? So this was the winter festival. I love the word liminality. Liminality is where two parallel systems exist. So it means a stage of transition between one stage and the next. And Samhain was thought to be one of these liminal times. It was when the veil between this world and the spiritual world was at its thinnest. And so those from the other side could pass through. So Samhain was celebrated at the end of the year and the new year for the Celts was the 1st of November. So the 31st of October was the night which the ghosts of the dead could walk among the people. Great bonfires were lit in every village to try and ward off evil spirits and prevent them from doing harm. But just in case it was the ancestors that were coming back from the other side, extra chairs and place settings were laid at the table just to make sure that they had the hospitality should they choose to join them. As well as being afraid of the spirits, people thought that they could bring warnings and guidance for the future and so this time became associated with divination. If you're a Harry Potter fan you know that this is all about making prophecies and seeing into the future. 
But the Catholic Church came and it began to take hold and they took over these ancient rituals and co-opted them into their own festival. And at this time of year, they created a festival of the Blessed Dead or the Hallowed Souls, which was known as All Saints and All Souls Day. And the evening before it was called All Hallows Eve, from which it's easy to get Halloween. The Catholic Church retained some of the traditions, including honouring the dead with food, especially small rich pastries called soul cakes. But instead of leaving them outside for ghosts, they were now distributed to beggars who went door to door, promising that they'd say prayers for the souls of the dead in exchange for these little cakes. So from the ancient folklore of the Celts and the Catholic Church, we've developed many of the traditions that we recognise today. And in Scotland, Halloween is still very much about the supernatural, witches, ghosties and things that go bump in the night. Now, traditionally, it's well known that evil spirits don't like fire. And so part of Halloween was always large bonfires. But just a few days after Halloween now, we have Guy Fox night. And so the bonfires have moved more to Guy Fox night rather than Halloween. Instead, we make lanterns to take into the darkness. And before you softies came on the scene, it was turnips <laughs> or neeps, as we call them in Scotland, or tumshies. So at great physical pain and at the cost of many <laughs> yes. implements, we would yes. scoop out a turnip. And then once we've got the innards taken out of it, we'd cut slits through the skin to make eyes and a mouth. Then we'd put a candle inside and that would be our lantern to see our way and to scare off any ghouls should they choose to come out looking for us. And to this day, one of my recollections of Halloween is the smell of burning oh, turnips. It's yes. so evocative. <laughs> and if you think about it, these horrible, gruesome lanterns, these Neeps lanterns, were just like the heads or the skulls that were put on poles round about the old towns to scare people away. They were a warning. So if you had to go out on Hall Hallows Eve, you didn't want to be recognised by any of these ghostly spirits. And so you'd dress up. You'd take some of the ash from the bonfire and you'd scrape on your face to darken your face and you'd wear old clothes as a disguise so that they wouldn't be able to recognise you. And from that, we've now got the term of guising. And it's largely moved to a children's festival now and we expect children to dress up and go door to door asking for offerings to ward off evil spirits. In exchange for that, we canny Scots weren't going to give them money for nothing, so they had to do a party piece. Maybe it would be a song, recite a poem, usually it was tell a joke because that was the easiest. And after they've done that, they got a treat. Traditionally fruit or nuts, but they turn up their noses at that nowadays. They want it to be sweets or better still, a coin, preferably a pound coin. And All Hallows Eve was always associated with playing tricks because it was a small step from the spirits to tricks. And so it became known as Mischief Night. And that's what the Americans have picked up on with their trick and treat. There are some other strong traditions. You might have heard of dukin for apples. Or if you're in the States, you'll know it as bobbin for apples. You have a tub with about a dozen apples floating in it. And you've got to use only your mouth with your hands tied behind your back to try and take one of the apples out of the water. 
And if you're taking too long and people get fed up, you can be sure that somebody will stick your head into the bucket. (laughs) Another one that's evolved from that is treacle scones, which is popular in Scotland, where you take a a scone, cover it in molasses or black treacle, put a string through it, suspend it from the ceiling, and you've got to eat it as fast as you can, again with your hands tied behind your back. So best to do the treacle scones first and the dukin for apples after to wash all the the (laughs) treacle off you. But all of this, the dukin for apples and the treacle scones, all comes back to this divination and this time of fortune telling, because this was the time where you could find out what lay ahead for you. And in particular, young women, it was never the men, it was always the women, they could divine the name and the appearance of their future husband, their beau. Now, how did they do this? Well, many, many ways that were said to be able to predict their future. One of them was to peel an apple and to keep the peel in one piece, toss it over your shoulder, and then it would form the initial of your husband as it fell onto the floor. You could stand in front of a mirror with a candle and if you looked over your shoulder, you'd see an apparition appear of the man who was to be your choice. Another popular one was kale pulling. Nowadays, kale is a popular vegetable, a kind of cabbage. But in those days, it was grown in the kale yard outside. You went out in the dark, making sure that your eyes were tightly closed just to be absolutely sure. And you had to pick a cabbage or kale and pull it out of the ground. And then once you had your particular kale, you looked at the stalk. Was it long and was it straight? If it was, you were going to get somebody tall, thin and handsome. And the amount of soil that was left on the roots would indicate how much money they had as well. But one final one, if you really wanted to find out if you were a good match for your bow, you would take two hazelnuts. You'd toss them onto the fire. If they burned slowly and quietly, then it was a good match and you were going to live in perfect harmony. But if they started to spit and hiss at one another, look out, turbulent times ahead. Oh, wow. That was really interesting. What do you remember from your childhood and your days of guising? We used to just dress up exactly as you said and go round the doors. You would never even think about going out without having your party piece all well rehearsed. You got something. And one thing we never did was carry a bag to collect all the stuff that you'll get. (laughs) And you'd never dream of that. What you couldn't carry in your hand or eat on the way, you didn't have. It seems so strange to us nowadays, but if you think about the times that they lived in, and I mean, these some of these traditions have lived on in rural areas, the highlands and the islands, you know, right up to present day. It's a much harder existence, a much closer relationship with the spirit world. So these were, were, were hard held beliefs. Um, people were really scared. But it's funny when you reflect on it, you know, our, our listeners, about half are from the UK and about half are from the States. And it's a case of what goes around comes around. Because in the middle of the 19th century, it was emigrants going across to the States that took these traditions with them. And then through the 1950s, they began to think that all this, this supernatural was getting out of hand. And so they very much made it a community centred activity. And now it's moved on to trick and treat across in the States. And we're now picking up on the trick and treat across here. So very few children will be carving out tumshi lanterns over the Halloween period. I've got a little uh, challenge for you two. I think you should each carve a tumshi for uh, Halloween this year. And yeah, I've done it already. I'll put a picture up online for you. You know, Helen, I'm afraid it's your turn. 
I've got to do one, have I? Yes. You do. <laughs> we don't have turnips over here. They've only oh, got pumpkins and that, that seems unfair. But yes, I will do a turnip lantern. The turnip one looks so much more evil. <laughs> okay, so moving on from Halloween and enjoy it wherever you are to our word of the day, Susan. My word of this episode is puggled. Yeah, because as you'll have heard, I'm not in the country right now. I'm in a much warmer place and it's been very hot and humid. So if it gets hot and humid, someone say, God, I'm a fair puggled. In other words, I'm very hot. Yeah, it's a good one. Yep. Yeah, I like that one. Liz. So my word for today arises because one of our listeners came up with a good word, which was foosty. He was saying that he remembers his grandparents saying something was foosty, which means it's mouldy, green mould, or it's going off. But that was the word that my gran used. But another word that she used was oos. And oos, O-O-S-E, is the dust that you get gathering in a space that you don't get to very often. So the top of a wardrobe or in the depths of a cupboard, where all the dust gathers together oh, and you get that sort of lint that forms. That's oos. A good old Scottish word. Just thinking the foosty goes with the bread, because when bread gets foosty, that's when you cut off the foosty bits and you make bread pudding. My word is footer, F-O-U-T-E-R, and it can be either a noun or a verb. As a noun, you can say, oh, this is just a footer. It means it's like kind of a fiddly job and you get exasperated with it. Or if it's a bird, you could say, well, you stop footering about and get on with it. Brilliant. Thank you all for your words of the episode. There we have it, our blether for this week. If you'd like to engage with us on social media, everybody out there, um, we're on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook as Scottish Blethers. We'd love to hear what you think of the episode and any topics that you might like us to cover in the in future blethers. So please do get in touch. So it's cheery bye from me. Ta-ta the new from me. And if I don't see you through the week, I'll see you through the windy from me. Bye. See ya. Bye. <laughs>